What do borders mean? And how does one study them? About this and many other important questions is this conversation with Celeste González de Bustamante in this new episode of El Café Latinx. What is the experience of being a Latinx or Latin American scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Wojcicki. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamid bin Khalif Al Thani Chair in Communication. Together with Mora Matassi, doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx or Latin American communities across the Americas. These are our stories. Esas son nuestras historias. Estas son nuestras historias. Welcome to this new episode of El Café Latinx. We have uh, with us uh, Dr. Celeste González de Bustamante, who is a professor in the School of Journalism at the University of Arizona with a dual courtesy appointment at the University of Arizona's Center for Latin American Studies. She is also an affiliated faculty member of the Mexican American Studies Department, History and the Gather Program in Human Rights Practice. In addition, she directs the Center for Border and Global Journalism. Her research interests include historical and contemporary issues related to media in the US, Mexico borderlands, Mexico, and other parts of Latin America. Professor Celeste Gonzalez de Bustamante got her BAs, because she has two BAs at San Jose State University. Uh, her MA, uh, in Latin American Studies at the University of Arizona and her PhD in History at the University of Arizona in 2006, where she has been a tenure track faculty member ever since. Um, she is the author of two books. The most recent one just published is Surviving Mexico, Resistance and Resilience Among Journalists in the 21st Century, published by the University of Texas Press. She has a number of publications in journal, in journal article form, in book chapters. She also has received many accolades uh, from uh, her work, including several awards for AEJMC. Professor González de Bustamante, it is a pleasure to have you with us today. Welcome to El Café Latinx. Thank you so much. Uh, it's a pleasure and honor to be here. Thank you for inviting me. The honor is all ours. So, so tell us, how did it all begin? That is, how was the start of the journey that led you to become a professor? <laughs> how long is this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Let me, uh, you know, I was thinking about this. I think it actually started when I was a child because my father was an ad man uh, in San Francisco, where I'm from originally, and he had his own um, advertising studio when it's one of the first um, people of color, I think, to have his own, um, probably one of the few in the 60s, uh, have his own uh, advertising studio in that important city. And then 
when we moved more to a more not so fancy city <laughs> in California, Northern California, Modesto, um, I um, got experience with uh, newspapers because my dad became the marketing director of a McClatchy newspaper. So then when I was trying to decide what I was going to do as a career, I liked writing. I also saw television news. Uh, we had news on our, uh, always on, um, you know, the McNeil Lara report. Now the news hour was always on and uh, listening to NPR and the radio and my, you know, parents bought, um, subscribed to the, the newspaper, of course, even before my dad was um, the marketing director of the Modesto Bee. And so I thought, oh, I don't know. I like writing. What I, I could see myself maybe um, being a, a television reporter because I thought that looked more, in, more exciting to me. So I thought I'm going to major in that. And it just so happened that San Jose State was a pretty good school for practice. Um, it, it, the program was very practice oriented and I got good training there. And so I went into television news and worked in television news and commercial and public television for 15 years uh, total. And, but it, like midway in that professional career, I went back and got my master's degree in Latin American studies and PhD in history, as you mentioned. And I just, it, it, it seemed like along the way, as I moved through my career, I started to enjoy the research part of journalism more and more. And I was able to apply some of what I was learning as a uh, a student, a master's student to some of the work I was doing along the US-Mexico border. So it's making these connections and really started to enjoy the research. And I guess they say, you know, journalism is a first draft of history. And I really liked history too, um, as well as political science. But I think I, I wanted to go into history because I, uh, I'm not a quantitative person. <laughs> uh, I didn't, I see the value in all of that, but the work I wanted to do was more qualitative. So I uh, got the PhD in history and um, was able to combine the practice, um, what, what I learned as a journalist and what I was doing as a, as a researcher and make a contribution, I think, starting to make a contribution and um, how journalists um, work along the border, but also how journalists historically have have represented and portrayed um, uh, different groups in a space, a contentious space like the U.S.-Mexico borderland, so undocumented people and how they're portrayed. You know? And so that's how I... Um, got to be a professor in the School of Journalism. And I, I would say, you know, when I was an undergrad at San Jose State, I never thought I would be a PhD and be an academic. I, I wanted to get out of school and start working as a journalist. That was my main goal. And I really loved it. But it, it progressed um, as I 
as I went through my career. And, and it makes sense now. It didn't, uh, you know, it wasn't like I planned it all. Like, I, it seems like it makes sense on paper, but uh, it just, uh, think I, I've been very fortunate to have a lot of uh, good opportunities along the way and, and really enjoy what I'm doing now. Excellent. So, so you were still working in television while you did your master's thesis, right? The master's program, right? Um, did you continue working in TV during your PhD or did you quit um, before the PhD? I, okay, so I was a, what I, they considered a non-traditional student because I was working full-time and getting the master's degree and having a child and managed to stay married somehow. <laughs> and um, I have a very supportive husband and daughter. <laughs> and so I was working full-time when I was getting the master's degree and then taking one, when I got to the PhD program, I would take maybe one class a semester. And then when I went to uh, do my dissertation research, I basically had to take a leave of absence because I was in Mexico for an extended period of time. And then when I came back from doing the PhD research, the dissertation research is when I started as a multi-year lecturer. And then when I got the degree is when I became a full-time professor, um, first an assistant professor of practice, and then I went on to the tenure track about a year later. Okay, so part of your PhD, you were also working in TV. Um, how, how did you juggle <laughs> the different roles? Uh, I probably dropped a, full, uh, a few balls along the way, <laughs> but I... Whew. I don't actually know. Sometimes I think back and wonder how I managed that. But I did, as I mentioned, have a very supportive partner. We had some help um, at home. And I had also a very supportive supervisor who at the time, I don't know if this is still the case uh, at the University of Arizona, but when I was getting my PhD and all the graduate work I did, um, because I was a full-time staff member, I had to have my supervisor sign off on every class I would take. So I bring my schedule to him and say, look, this is what I'm going to be taking in the spring or the fall, and he would sign it. And um, I just am so thankful for him to this day. His name is Hector Gonzalez, and my husband's name is Hector Bustamante. So people would <laughs> often think that he was either my brother, or husband, <laughs> it was it was funny, but um, he was ex a very both both of those actors have been very supportive in, in what I've been able to do. Okay, so did you? So how was the process of transitioning from being a student to a professor? Did you uh, uh, want to stay? Uh, at the University of Arizona, and you just looked there? Did you look for jobs elsewhere? How was the transition for you? That's a good question. I thought that, like most, most doctoral students, that once I got the PhD, then I would have to leave the institution. I should say that the PBS station for which I was working, which is now Arizona Public Media, is uh, located on the campus and the 
the Board of Regents, the Arizona Board of Regents holds the license to that station. It's a purely professional station, but through the way they set that station up decades ago, the Board of Regents holds the license. So in effect, I was a state of Arizona employee and then my tuition got paid for, which is why I was like, oh, I'll just take a, you know, it's almost like a hobby at first. And then I really enjoyed it and realized, oh, this is probably where I want my career to go. And, and that's how I was able to take, you know, these a few classes at a time. And so having said that, I thought like most PhD students that once I get the PhD, I'm going to have to look elsewhere because of this uh, notion that you don't want to be hiring your PhDs, especially right after they get their PhD, you want them to go somewhere else, you know, to have some intellectual diversity, which makes sense. And so uh, at that same time, I was teaching as an adjunct, I forgot to mention that, um, I was teaching as an adjunct in the School of Journalism. And the director of the school at that time, Jacqueline Sharkey, had been following my career and she knew I, she was actually on my PhD committee as well. And there was an opening that came up in the School of Journalism. So I was not hired to work in, as a faculty member in history. I was hired to work in the School of Journalism. And that's how I, I was able to stay at the same institution and not have to go on the job market. So I was very lucky in that regard. And at the same time, we were working on establishing a dual degree in journalism, a dual master's degree in journalism and Latin American studies. So I played a role in helping to set up that dual degree and teach a, a lot of courses that have um, overlap with the Center for Latin American Studies, which is one of the reasons I'm a, an affiliated faculty member there. Okay, very interesting. So you stay, stayed within the institution, but changed affiliations or, you know, departments right. in the institution. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so it is common, at least in stories that I've heard, that uh, when students finish their PhD and then become faculty members, um, they go through a little bit of what could be seen as an identity transformation, identity transition um because it is different to be you know a student learning than actually uh, inhabiting the role of faculty right so but in your case you stay in the same place although change uh departments how did how did you manage did you experience much of a transition or how did you manage that process i i don't feel like okay let me take that back it was kind of overwhelming i will say <laughs> having three classes because they, I started out as a professor of practice and then once I went on the tenure track having two class um, I teach a two 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 in the fall and two courses in the spring so it was a it was a transition I was um you know as I mentioned I don't always I had been teaching for a couple of years as an adjunct but then teaching three courses and knowing that I wanted to get my research off the ground was, was a challenge. And um, the way I just dealt with it was triage, <laughs> um, just 
prioritizing and doing, taking on those priorities first um, and dealing with those, you know, whether it was uh, the classroom or trying to get some public, you know, publications out. Uh, I will say that it was a challenge for me to start um, publishing in journals because I, I really didn't have I think some, this is not a negative about my program, but in some programs, I think they really, really encourage and support graduate students to publish before they get onto the job market. And because I was thinking, oh, well, you know, this is also partly my, my thinking was I'm going to probably stay at the School of Journalism. There wasn't that pressure necessarily to start publishing before I graduated. But then once I realized, well, if I'm gonna go on the tenure track, I need to start publishing. It was a little bit of a shock too, in terms of how much work that was going to be. So it's just, um, what helped was talking to a lot of colleagues, some within my institution, some outside of my institution, developing a, a, a pool of mentors. Uh, that was very important, again, with some of them being at my institution and some of them being outside of my institution. They were tremendously helpful. That's um, how I was able to kind of negotiate that, that transition that um, was kind of a shock at the beginning, but finally, you know, you just kind of get into a somewhat of a routine of it and, or just get used to the pressure of it. Maybe that's part you just get used to that anxiety always being there until now I'm a full professor. And I, you know, it's uh, one of my colleagues mentioned to me that um, this starts in graduate school and this is her, this is her um, metaphor but not mine because I feel still very energized by what I do but she said we're like horses you know you have to you put the bit in their mouth you know when they're um, graduate students and then you know by the time they get to be full professors you take out the bit and they'll still just keep walking because they're so used to having that in their mouth but anyway um, I don't quite feel like that but you you do end up learning how to um, be self-motivated. I guess that's it. You just have to be very self-motivated in this type of um, work. So and I guess if there were some thoughts on that, it would be what is motivating is usually those things that are more interesting to you. So picking a project or projects that are going to really resonate with who you are and where you want to be and what kinds of contributions you want to make as a opposed to saying, oh, you know, there's a lot of people publishing in this realm, maybe I should do that. Kind of really kind of think about what it is that makes you tick and what you want, what you would like to contribute to the world of media studies or journalism studies. Excellent, thank you. Um, now, another Perhaps, I don't know, I'd be curious to hear from you, but another source of tension or stress um, in your particular case may be the topic that you have followed at least for the past 10 years, and you, mm. you mentioned before as well. I mean, you study difficult subject, right? Um, 
uh, you know, just finished a 10 or so year journey uh, documenting uh, how you know, the conditions that uh, journalists in Mexico uh, have to deal with as they perform their work and their strategies and tactics uh, for dealing with that. And as we know, these are very dire times for you know, the practice of journalism in Mexico. And one might add in many other parts of the world, as you know, uh, we saw with, the, with this year's uh, Nobel Peace Prize, right? Uh, that, that recognize and acknowledge that reality. So how, how did you manage the day-to-day -day aspect of that particular topic? Right, um, because there are other topics that many colleagues study that are not perhaps as as hard. One might think, right? Right, right. I uh, so, so I that's a great question because I the, the previous work I was doing uh, with the previous book was on uh, television in Mexico, and one of the pivotal parts of that book is looking at how news. Um, television news covered the 68 massacre in Mexico, the massacre at Tlatelolco, in which more than 300 people were killed um, in uh, housing development. And so I was thinking that was a very heady and difficult subject. And I thought, oh, we gotta, I gotta pick something that's less, uh, maybe I could do something on clowns or something, you know, <laughs> puppets. <laughs> but then, you know, this situation with the journalists started happening right on our border. And I just felt so obligated to do something. There wasn't a lot of research on academic research on what was happening and how journalists were trying to um, confront what they were facing and how they were changing the practice. And so I just felt like that was something that I needed to do at the time. And it was difficult at the same time. You know, one thing that's interesting, like we talked about how these networks have been formed among journalists, for journalists, established by journalists. I think one of the ways that I and my colleague Janine Relly, who co-authored the book with me, dealt with that is by creating our own sense of community and networks. I mean, we weren't even doing that kind of in a intentional way, it just happened. I mentioned mentors, but there are all kinds of mentors that you can have. You can have mentors who've gone through what you've gone through decades before you. You could have peer mentors, which are very important and so developing a community of uh, scholars and some professionals, I think was very helpful in uh, continuing that work because it was difficult at times Like you read about these cases and you really want to do justice to the work because people are actually dying, you know, and you want to make sure that you're not putting any of the people you're including in the study and any sort of harm by doing the research that you're doing. That includes from going to the research site and going to different communities to the actual publication. So, uh, but getting through it, I think what helped us get through that was um, 
the, the good relationship that Janine and I have, as well as our sort of wider network of friends and colleagues. Okay. And by looking at your curriculum, uh, one guess idea that you've lived uh, most of your life, numerically, in the States, mm -hmm. um, yet um, Mexico is an important locus of your research. What does Mexico mean to you? Mexico, okay, so I am gonna blow your mind, Pablo. <laughs> because my background is actually, I'm Filipino American. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you knew that or not, so maybe I'm not blowing your mind, but um, a lot of people think I'm, I'm from Mexico because of my research. My husband's from Mexico. He's originally from Mexico. Um, and I've done so much work as a journalist and so much work as a, an academic in, in Mexico. And in some ways I do feel uh, Latinx, his, his, Hispanic because of where I grew up. Also my grandparents were farm laborers, very similar, had a very similar experience to Mexican um, uh, farm laborers in California at that particular time in the you know mid early mid 20th century and um, I have always had many La Latinx friends going growing up through elementary uh, through um, getting my PhD and so Mexico because of where I've lived and my um, experiences, and also being often um, considered to be Mexican-American, um, Mexico is like a second home to me, really. I mean, I've probably visited more places in Mexico than in the United States, and know Mexican media as deeply or more deeply than the United States media, from uh, from a scholarly perspective, so it's it's part of who I am, I would say, and um, I have had a lot of good fortune in uh, meeting amazing friends and scholars in Mexico. So it's it's like another it's another home. So, and in in addition to having a second home, your work um, focuses a lot on border issues and your institutional mm -hmm. work, right? You have a first home and a second home, but also a lot of attention to the border, right? Right. There's another country in and of itself. <laughs> I was going to say, what is the border for you? It's, you know, I, I think of um, Gloria Antaldúa's work. It's, you, it's a third space. It's a, and it's not, the United States, it's not Mexico, it's something in, in and of its own. And it's also used by the, getting back to this idea of center and periphery, uh, used by the Washington or Mexico City to kind of define the nation. You know, the, the nation is sometimes defined along its periphery. And that's the place where there's a point of contention, whether it's Mexico and the US or, you know, you talk about other borders around the world. And so it's a 
fascinating place where there's a whole different culture in and of its own that's not necessarily US or Mexico. It's and the border in San Diego, Tijuana, El Paso, Ciudad Juarez, Nogales, Arizona, Nogales, Sonora, they're communities that are completely distinct and different. There's some similarities going on there in terms of trade and that kind of thing. And, and people having families on both sides of the border, but the communities themselves are, are vastly different, have different histories, that's why I just, I find it an amazing place to, to live and to, to work and do research and to also teach. I, uh, I don't know if you know this, but I teach a class called Reporting the US-Mexico Borderlands. And I love this class. I think students love it too. They've told me that um, because it's not much about me, but what they get to do in the class. We go down to the border, which is again, 60 miles, from Tucson, we go to the international line and to ambos nogales, which means both nogales. And we go cross into to Mexico as much as we possibly can. We go down there once a week. They get to le learn about the communities and see firsthand what it's like. They get to meet people who live and have connections, historical, cultural connections on both sides or economic connections. And then by the end of the class, even some of the students who are from border regions realize, oh, this, the complexity of, and the nuance and the really amazing um, parts of, 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 of where they live. And so, yeah, I, I really, have, I did not know early, earlier on when I first moved to this region, how, how, how very, deep this, the, the culture is part of, um, of the region and um, the geography. And it's, it's, it's a, a fascinating, wonderful place. Fascinating. Now, so we have the, the second home, we have the first home, we have the border. Um, in the academic community, how have you found the place of Latinx media studies to be? I would say it's on the border. <laughs> I think it's uh, unfortunately, it's sort of marginalized. I think you're doing a great job in trying to change that and what you're doing with this series and the work at the Center for Latinx Digital Media. But I do think that's slowly changing, but right now and historically this kind of research, I mean, media studies research in general is kind of uh, marginalized, you know, and um, thinking about the big disciplines within social sciences, media studies is um, maybe, you know, if you were to create a hierarchy, not, not regarded and that's very, very highly, I think that's changing too, but then you put in and add Latinx and Latin America into that, then it becomes even more sort of fringe. Unfortunately, um, 
And so I think maybe that's changing with some of the demographic changes in the United States. People are realizing, hey, maybe it's maybe it makes sense to learn about the people who are coming here and the kind of media systems that are in place in the countries where folks are coming from, as well as how media are portraying them in the United States or other other countries around the world, and also what kinds of media they're producing about and for themselves. Okay. So then, if you were to be granted magical powers that allow you to make one wish about how you would like the field of communication and media studies to change, what is it that you would wish for? Well, I like this question. I love this question, um, Pablo, because it relates to what I just said. And my wish is that Latinx and Latin American media studies would be completely decolonized and anti-racist. And again, thinking about what you're doing here with your center, what others um, have been doing for decades really um, is part of that. Uh, I mean, there's so many scholars who have been doing this work, but they've kind of been on the fringes and not recognized to the extent that I think they should. We're, you know, Felix Gutierrez, Otto Santana, I mean, Angara Maldivia. There's, I mean, I could just go on and on about some of the pioneers in this area. What I would hope for is that that, that research is not considered fringe anymore. And also that all scholars will kind of start to think about the kinds of questions they're asking. Um, and, and so that the methodologies also become decolonized. I just was looking at this book here. Um, it's uh, Decolonizing Methodologies, Research and Indigenous Peoples by Linda to to E.Y. Smith, it's in the second edition. Um, and so this is not necessarily having to deal with media studies, but it's about research methodologies and including indigenous perspectives. I mean, how, how much research do we know of that, that considers indigenous perspectives and indigenous media in the US or in Latin America, where there are indigenous communities, obviously, all over Latin, Latin America. So I think that would be a part, a huge step in decolonizing and being anti-racist. Uh, some of the, there's some recent work out there, um, Alyssa Richardson's Bearing Witness While Black that has won many awards and, and for good reason, that kind of work uh, I, I hope continues and can continue to be centered as opposed to being on the periphery. And so what, why is that even important? You know, thinking about academic work, you know, what is that even, who cares, you know, if, if somebody says, well, why is that even important that media studies and journalism studies be decolonized? Because hopefully there's, 
a connection between the scholarship and what is the the media itself um and there's a bridge between that there's some uh, efforts to decolonize and make media anti-racist but there is certainly a conversation between the scholarship and the media that is being produced and so i think what i'm getting at is my goal my dream would be if i had a magic wand um, magical powers would be for that scholarship to be decolonized and anti-racist and have an influence on the media for production and therefore improving um, our societies around the world. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, this has been a wonderful conversation. So let's say I hope uh, you enjoyed it as much as I did. And um, I did. I think, excellent, excellent, excellent. So I, um, you left me thinking um, uh, lots of things. So I, I want to thank you for your time and for sharing with us your journey and your thoughts. And I want to thank our listeners. Uh, for staying with us to the end and I invite everybody to tune in again for the next episode of El Café Latinx. Bye now. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. El Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I am Pablo Wojcikowski, your host, and I'm joined by executive producer Mora Matassi.